Before I get started, I want to let you know about an upcoming program, a new way of experiencing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, presented by the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago with Timeline Theater's acclaimed co-founder Nick Bowling, MFA, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, June 21st through 23rd. Join us as we enter the world of Frankenstein and the act of creation from both a psychological and theatrical perspective. We will explore the intentions and obstacles of the characters in the Frankenstein story in order to better begin to understand ourselves. We will examine the process of creating a production and how this work reflects what it means to be human in an increasingly technology-obsessed world lacking in adequate human relatedness. Come prepared to participate, learn, engage, create, and play. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Mythology and Clinical Practice with Nathan Schwartz-Salant, Ph.D. Nathan Schwartz-Salant explores the importance of mythology for understanding and containing psychic life within the analytic process. The myths of Pan, Dionysus, Gilgamesh, and Egyptian images of creation are examined in the context of transference, countertransference dynamics, and the creation of the containing environment. This episode is the first session of the series. The rest of the series is available at our website, jungchicago.org. Nathan Schwartzelon, PhD, is a Jungian analyst and author of Narcissism and Character Transformation and the Borderline Personality, Vision and Healing. He was also co-editor with Murray Stein of the Chiron Clinical Series. We'll have links in the show notes to the complete series, as well as more seminars by Dr. Schwartz-Salant. Remember, if you want to support this podcast, rather than making a donation to the Institute, just buy something from our online store that interests you, whether it's this series or any other one. Proceeds from the online store support the continuing publication of the podcast. Talking about uh, about mythology has in the past always been difficult for me because I've never been happy with the way it was used clinically. And since <clears throat> my main, not that it hasn't been used well, but I haven't been happy about it. And uh, my main uh, interest is in the clinical use of these things. And <clears throat> and I'm especially interested in. Um, the effect of using uh, mythical references in analytic practice. Um, <clears throat> and just to, to give you an idea um, of what I'm talking about, remember when Jung uh, wrote Symbols of Transformation and 
he used um, the Frank Miller fantasies. Um, a man came here and gave a lecture on those Miller fantasies. Did some of you were there to hear that lecture? Uh, it's a it's a remarkable piece of scholarship, uh, in which um, uh, I only know, know his first name. I can't remember the whole Indian last name, but Sonu. Uh, what he did was he um, really went back and discovered who uh, Frank Miller was, and. You may remember that Jung um, got a hold of these fantasies and wrote her up in his book, 1911, as a um, diseased woman, as a woman who was definitely bound to suffer a schizophrenic brain. <clears throat> as these things go, he actually got letters from several uh, psychiatrists who claimed they had worked with Frank Miller and that in fact Jung's um, diagnosis as he followed these mythological themes was absolutely correct and that she did become schizophrenic. Uh, Jung was joyful about this. He had proved, he had followed these mythological parallels, he had followed 180 pages he wrote at a at one, at a, at a go, at a go at it, without knowing where he was going to end up, and finally ended up in a place where he knew he had touched solid ground. To say nothing of the fact that he later got the verification that following through these mythological parallels to this woman's material was, in fact, not only correct but astonishingly correct, and because it predicted a it predicted a psychosis. Fact, Frank Miller was a very accomplished woman. She was never psychotic. She um, was accomplished in the world of costuming. She gave a, she gave important lectures at Columbia University in America and all over the world on costumes. She was in a mental hospital for two months on false in a false predicament for supposedly it was to be a rest cure. She, in fact, was never psychotic, was never in any such institution again. She had given her, um, she had given her visions, so-called visions, to the uh, psychologist Florinoy, French psychologist Florinoy, who had a special interest in uh, cryptomagia, cryptonesia, meaning that he was interested in how uh, people could seemingly create all of this wonderful mythological material, but in fact it could be traceable through hypnosis and other ways to actual things they had read at different times in their life. So she had created this incredible fantasy, so-called Miller fantasies, and gave it to Flournoy to prove, help prove his position on cryptonesia. Jung took them as an example of spontaneous fantasies of the unconscious, of a series of material that just emerged that was in fact to prove that the woman was doomed. Now, I don't care about that too much. We all make mistakes. And we all, and we all get off on our patient's material. What I do care a little about is something that happened later.
1925, when Jung reflected on what he had done with the Miller fantasies. Uh, And what he said in his first public lectures, really, where he had made it in the world. And what he talked about was that he realized that Miss Miller, who he calls in 1925 a diseased woman, what he says is that he himself was a man who was so identified with the world of logic and clarity and his feeling side was so undeveloped that what he realized he did was that he had projected unconsciously this undeveloped feeling side onto this diseased woman but by virtue of recognizing the mythological patterns in her material he had succeeded in integrating this diseased side back into himself for considerable therapeutic gain. Now, that is the basic principle within Jung about, quote, diseased parts, or better said, psychotic parts of a personality. Namely, what you find within psychotic material are archetypal themes which are no different, in essence, from archetypal themes in non-psychotic material. The difference is the dissociation between the conscious world of the ego and the unconscious. So the goal is to make a bridge to those parts through bathing them and yourself, if you will, in the mythological material that really underpins that part. If you can break the dissociation, consequently, you can integrate these parts into a healthy form, workable with your normal personality. The overriding emphasis, consequently, is always on the attitude of the conscious personality. In most all of Jung's work on psychosis, barring a Uh, side theory on some toxic element. The main theme is a deficiency in the conscious attitude. If Miss Miller had only given up her fantasies about this sailor and recognized the infantile natures of the fantasy she had had, maybe she wouldn't have been doomed into being dragged into this underworld of psychosis. It's all about the conscious attitude. Okay. Now, part of what I want to talk to you about today is about these mad parts, mad parts of sane people. I'm going to probably be spending a lot of time with that in, these, in, in this talk and also referencing it to the god Dionysus a lot. But my approach, and it differs from Jung's, is that these mad parts of us, for example, the parts of himself that he projected onto Frank Miller, these mad parts of us are never integrated. We, we do not deal with an issue of the dissociation between conscious and unconscious, but rather 
<coughs> dissociations and distortions that run through the entire fabric of one's being. <coughs> the notion of a ego be, being able to transform its attitude so that it could get mastery over these parts is just a ridiculous German romanticism. <coughs> we don't get mastery over these parts any more than the Greeks got mastery over Dionysus through the Apollo cult. You do not get mastery over these parts. What you do is learn to live with them and learn to be limited by them. And there's a great mystery in that. It's a true mystery of soul and a true mystery of the opening of the heart. And that's really a, another subhead and a theme that uh, interests me a great deal is about the heart. And the reason is that the parts of psyche that I find absolutely most critical in any analysis are parts that are only amenable through the heart. That is to say through an imagination of the heart, which is to say through a consciousness that you may have in which your head has diminished its uh, lead position and in a way your heart sees and you see through your heart. Now, the parts of the soul that are most in need of that kind of vision are so-called schizoid parts. That is to say, the parts of our being that have been split off and live in a state of absolute pathetic helplessness, energylessness, <laughs> states of mind that are also surrounded by a good deal of psychotic material. But a fundamental piece of our being, every, all of our beings, in any disorder you can think of, any character disorder, there is always a split-off schizoid element. Uh, this is usually not talked about. It's nothing greatly new, but it is there. And it is that element in which the person is truly helpless. Truly helpless. Energy is totally drained out, yet any renewal depends on that part coming alive. Now, you remember, uh, a lot of you are familiar with Guntrip's work on schizoid phenomena, object relations in the self. It's a great work, coming from a very schizoid man who suffered his whole life. Finally got himself together the last two years of his life. Suffered from major states of depersonalization, derealization, his entire adult life. Uh, terrible suffering, and his book is a testimony to what he knew about this deep part. New in an odd way, too. New always holding on to having to relate to the world, totally undervaluing introverted dimension and all that. But nevertheless, the dynamics of what that man knew was, was terrific. You might remember one of the things he talks about. He talks about how in the inner world of that split-off part, there's really three objects, three, three objects that all the welter of fragments in that world can be reduced to. And one of those object, objects he calls the idealized object. The other is a rewarding object, and the other is a withholding object. Now, what that means, for example, is that, this, is that if a person, say a young infant, has had to, for survival purposes, idealize the parent. That idealization from that idealized object has the following form. It is acutely sensitive to making that parent feel whole. It is acutely <laughs> sensitive to making that parent feel like it is competent. 
On the other hand, that parent can be felt as totally engulfing or that parent can be felt as totally persecutory. Now, when you, as an analyst, or whatever you do with myths, talk about the mythological level to a patient, and you talk in a way that you address the patient's healthy personality, you talk to that patient, you talk to that person as though they are intact. You tell them your myth, okay? You tell them a myth. It's always your myth when you do it this way. You tell them a myth. The message that I'm terribly concerned about is what message do I give to the psychotic part of the personality? What message do I give to the schizoid ego? Do I give the message that, hey, I have given you this myth, and now you have got to make sure that I am really good in giving you this myth. You see, what am I doing to these other parts of personality if I tell these myths? And since I can only relate to these other parts of personality through the heart, not through the head and knowledge, if I'm ever re relating myths through the organ of mind and knowledge, am I not always in that act splitting off from these other parts of personality. So a lot of what I want to talk to you about is clinical material that can show how we can split off these parts of personality through an inappropriate use of myth. So in a way the lectures are about myth and the shadow of myth. Because we must be acutely aware of the power of myth. Myth has an incredibly seductive power. I think it's kind of synchronistic, you know, when Joe Campbell did those uh, lectures with Bill Moyers. Most of you, I assume, know some of that about the world of myth. And Joe came out with that idea of follow your bliss. Horrid idea. <laughs> and uh, But what was interesting is that um, he really got jumped on. And the first thing that happened in the press after all that was his shadow came out. Everything that had been laying there latent and that had never been talked about him came right out. Everybody was suddenly worried about Joe Campbell's shadow. Yeah, it's incredible. Because there is a dark shadow side to myth. There is a way myth can be misused. I believe Jung misused myth in the way he dealt with Frank Miller's fantasies. I believe he misused myth in the way he dealt with his own psychotic part. Once you bathe this stuff in a mythical level alone as your dominant way of relating to it, you have in a certain way condoned psychopathy. Um, it's not for nothing that there's always been a great reserve about mythology in many places that had a strong concern with ethics. Greats, who was the great uh, uh, 19th century uh, uh, historian of uh, Judaism, called the Zohar the Book of Lies. <clears throat> the Zohar was that is that document, of course, that brings myth mythology back into Judaism. That's nonsense. But the issue is that you can obscure the fact through a mythical approach of the basic issue that there are aspects of our being that are dangerous 
that are dangerous to other people. The analyst who identifies with the idealized object, and I don't mean, um, and I don't mean an idealized transference in a Cahusian sense, which is a positive thing to embrace, but who, ide- who identifies with the idealized object as an inner structure in the patient who acts this out, in other words, becomes a well of knowing, of knowledge, whether through myth or whatever. The analyst who is quick to pull out Osiris is an example of the schizoid part. We'll we'll talk a lot about Osiris and the schizoid part. But the analyst who is too quick to do it and identifies with that idealized object is really doing a tremendous disservice to the patient's soul. It takes a great deal of courage for a patient to be able to come to an analysis, come to an analyst, and be able to eventually attack and attack and attack until the person will finally let the patient be crazy. You see, uh, we are always consistently using our knowledge to favor the, the patient's more normal functioning. We are consistently using what we know to stress the normal neurotic side of the patient and not allow the psychotic part into the room. And I'll talk a lot with you about what that feels like, the psychotic part of the room, talk to you about how mythological material streams through it, and talk to you about the nature of that part and how we undermine its integration if we jump at it with myth prematurely. Because the only way we can grasp that part, which has to do with the peculiar way the opposites are split in it, is through the transference-countertransference process. Then, when the mythological dimensions are added, it has a containing quality, which is very positive. Only if one's willing to let it go and go back to the hardcore, so-called psychotic material in which thinking is destroyed, massive emptiness dominates, and tremendous hatred rushes through in a furious way which is not pleasant. So it's a little bit to begin with about the cautions about myth and the fact that I certainly don't want to give you uh, a workshop that interprets myths to you. Uh, that's That's to me dead stuff. What we're looking for is what myths tell us about psyche. Not interested in looking at a myth and putting Jungian labels on it or any other labels. We're interested in what these products can tell us about the psyche. Now, suppose let's just suppose that we're able to use these creations in a good way, whatever that means, and we'll try to talk about that, what a good way means. For one thing, it certainly means that we use it in a way that does not, that does not block out the patient's madness. We use it in a way that does not act out the subtle idealizations that are given to us. We use it in a way that does not act out our grandiose needs to know. So we do that. Suppose that we do use these things in a good way, and we'll talk about that more. Okay. What are we using? What are they? They're all Bronze Age creations. They're all patriarchal creations. Every, every single one you use has been derived by the, from the patriarchy. <clears throat> there isn't a myth you have that isn't all patriarchal. 
oh, well, you know, we can scoot back a bit towards uh, third millennium stuff. Uh, Gilgamesh, talk, we'll talk a little about that. Do a little better that way. Can pick up some of uh, some Neolithic traces. Can, we can also um, go back uh, with um, Dionysus and uh, roots in Minoan culture, which hung on to the goddess cult longer than any other on Crete, and get senses of what might have been going on before a patriarchal uh, you know, renovation of these creations. But we're basically using a man's model. We're basically using creations that suit the development of a view of the world which is to dominate, which is to put order into disorder, which is to control nature. And so it's very important when you think about using these myths to to really think carefully about what you're using. It's not that there are some times with men especially that some of these creations are not valuable to use. They are. But I think it's especially tricky to use these things with women, and it's especially tricky to use these myths with, you know, whether we take, if we take them whole cloth, you know, from Greece, from Egypt, Egypt is Bronze Age. If we take these myths in a whole cloth way and see a person's material in terms of them, it is seeing things in a very distorted way, sometimes usefully so, but we have to know what we're doing. You see, one of the great values of the mythical level is that it begins to intersect a larger dimension of existence then the kind of fragmentary products that come to us in the transference, in a person's history, in dreams often, one gets a sense of a larger world that out of which these fragments fall. Now that's the basic Jungian model. Do you understand? That is the basic Jungian model. You have it in Jung's um, visions out of which all of his work came. Visions between 1912 and 1916, or 13 and 17, the no, 12 and 16. You have it, the basic visions he had, you know, he talks about a memories, dreams, and reflections. If you're not familiar with that, do go back to it sometime. It's an incredible thing to recognize that, as he says, all of my work can be found in those visions And in those visions, he was very often psychotic. He went into a psychotic place, and he came out. And he came out with a theory of archetypes, and he came out with an armament of symbols. He came out. He also shut the door on it and said that no one else ought to go there. See? And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible problem in Jungian psychology. He said only those with a certain moral character, as he put it, which is a hell of a term for him to use, only those with a certain moral character should go there. I mean, we have to be honest about this. 
The man is not to be idealized. He is to be treasured as an incredible genius in mind, but not to be idealized. There was a dark shadow, and if you don't see it, you're going to repeat it um, because you've taken so much of him in, whether you like it or not. Uh, the place he went to was a place in which, as he said, I, he feared madness. He feared going mad. When he was there, Freud wrote him a letter and said, my dear son, you're just schizophrenic. Um, he went into places where he was truly overwhelmed. He did come out. When he was in this place, he learned from his guide, Basilides, as you know in the seven sermons, there are, there are two main levels of reality, Pleroma and Creatura. Pleroma, the level of unity and oneness, and Creatura, the level of parts. David Bohm, implicate order, explicate order. Indian philosophy, basic. You find it better in the Bhagavad Gita, by the way. The notion of the relationship between these two levels. Jung didn't know Indian myth at that time. You find the notion a unitary world and the world of parts. Forty-five years later, Mysterium Conjunctionis, his great magnum opus. The essence of a, psych, of a healing process is to bring events back to their a priori unity. Events back to unity. That's the Gnostic strain in Yellow. Events back to unity. That's the healing function. And it has a healing quality often, too. Often a big shadow of splitting. Because you can lose the parts in a dangerous way. But the unity is represented by the world of myth. When you intersect the world of myth, you go into a world whose capacity, as Levi Strauss says, and one of the things that uh, he says that's particularly pertinent, you have to watch Levi Strauss about myth, you know, it's like reading mathematics. Because someone said that um, Levi Strauss captured the harmony and lost the melody. You know, it's that uh, the loss of the feeling element, but nevertheless, there's incredible, incredible uh, wisdom in, in Levi Strauss. And. <laughs> He said that what, a, what the myth does is it's a third path between opposites. And indeed, when you embrace the mythical level, you do embrace something so that the parts are no longer operative in your psyche, but a third way that's more unified is. So it's a very, very important domain. But let's never forget the myths we have, ready-made from all the handbooks on mythology, are myths of the patriarchy. So we have a view that brings us close to the unitary world, but it's a patriarchal view. Now, one of the things that I want to uh, do with you over this time is to, um, for example, go over some of the myths and show how we can reimagine them without the patriarchal elements. Um, for example, uh, especially the Egyptian myth of, the, of creation and the god Osiris. And we want to talk about ways in which we can think about um, great goddesses, especially like uh, Kibbele, who shows up in such a destructive way 
in mythology, but a destruction that's readily related to the patriarchal tradition that suppressed her. And we want to ask ourselves what kind of consciousness represented by the male, image of the male, and it's nothing to do with men, what kind of consciousness represented by the image of the male might in fact be able to live with a Kibbele figure in a creative way, rather than either be destroyed by her or have to destroy her. So it's these kind of issues that we'd like to explore. Now that's an overview. Okay. Um, what I thought I'd do maybe stop and see if there's any reflections or questions. But what I then wanted to start doing with you uh, this morning is just talk to you about some clinical material and the way in which uh, very simple material in a way, but a way in which myth can be used for purposes of intervention for purposes of interpretation, something I want to talk to you about. Interpretation does not have to be something that uh, traces back early developmental roots. Interpretation can also function through the use of myth if it processes the transference and countertransference. Um, and I want to go over some examples of the way myth can be used in actual clinical practice. Very simple examples, examples where like I find myself thinking in terms of a myth with a patient. Examples in which I'm not going to focus on the issues of the psychotic part, on the issues of splitting defenses, but on the issue of just a kind of use of myth for certain therapeutic leverage, especially for the leverage of forming a facilitating or containing environment. You know, the Winnicottian notion of a facilitating environment in which a patient feels safe is a typical Winnicottian thing. It's a throwaway word that everybody thinks they ought to understand, but it's very deep and nobody can explain. I mean, nobody can really explain how you create a facilitating environment. Uh, yet, uh, if, it, if it's not there, you ought to know it. And a proper use of myth can be one factor that can help that. And I have to quickly footnote that by saying that the improper use of myth, when it's used to split off the psychotic parts, can terribly undermine the creation of a facilitating environment. What I'd like to call and bring to you as the uh, quality of, the, of a mythical attitude towards one's process, in distinction to a developmental attitude. Just some basic examples as to how myth can come into the room in what may have been a creative way, and but primarily uh, with an attitude of thinking about these things in terms of what we might learn from them in an ongoing way, not as a, as a way of definitively understanding a person's process. That's deadly. I mean, if you ever know something, you've killed it. You must understand that. That's, that's terrible. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, Bion is wonderful about this, that, you know, he, he knew that the more he analyzed someone, the less he knew about them. And, and it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So that's kind of an introduction. Stop for a second and see if there's any uh, thing that you have to say. Yes, I wonder if you'll be making a distinction between mythic figures and the action involved in it. So, for instance, talking about, say, Proteus, 
as a as a mythic figure is different from looking at it in the context of the Ulysses story, or uh, thinking of him as as, as a son of Ulysses or something. Uh, so, if if the myth is a story with the beginning, middle, and the end, right. which is meant to be eternal, right. will you be distinguishing that from the use of figures that constellate dynamic characteristics in the useful and obvious? Well. I, obviously, when they care, when they constantly dynamic characteristics, you're getting close to the story. Is that what you mean, or? No, sometimes you might not. Well, I think that uh, to not have the whole story in mind is really deadly. I mean, it, it becomes a way of fitting things in to make them work. That you can do that, you know, you can see a dream and say, oh, I mean, there used to be a caricature in Zurich where, you know, all of us learning learning this stuff would see a dream and say, oh, that's Zeus, you know, <laughs> or that's that. Well, it has nothing to do with Zeus. I mean, it has to do with the person's imagery. It, you know, if they were Greek living, you know, in the 7th century B.C., maybe it would have to do with Zeus. I mean, but the, the issue is, can one deal in the whole context of the pattern? That's very important. That's very important because it's a way of having a kind of dialogue with yourself, really, about what the mystery of this might be. Yes, and so for, for the analyst to be well familiar with, in a sense, the, the, the idea of explicate and implicate order might even be useful in the interaction. Oh, there's no question. The, there's no question. The, the analyst always has to be able to play back and forth between... Um, the levels in which there are pieces and parts through a developmental lens, through being continually aware of these pieces and these parts and how they're interacting and how they go right back to the breast. This is absolutely essential. Every time you tell a patient anything, you have fed, you, you are everything is at the breast. At a certain level of the patient, you must realize that whatever you say to them is a feed. And while that's totally nonsense when it, in any realistic way when it refers to seemingly healthy parts of a person, from that regressed ego, you know, that's living back there at two months of age, two, three months of age, first year of life, whatever you say is a response in which you have taken in whatever comes from the patient, verbal or not, metabolized it, and come out with something. So you are always giving something back which is your milk to that level and it's very often bad milk if it's not coming if it's not a milk that's come through the heart and realizes where it's going to so that's absolutely essential that you know the difference and you know between this larger level that you're intersecting and the part level and to always have it in your mind to be playing back and forth between the two. Yes? Still trying to get a sense for your basic, basic thing. You did a good job talking about it for a half hour. Um, so Jung opened the door to myth, opened the door to mythology, and that let in the psychotic aspect of ourselves. But then Jung... Had to control, felt he had to control these aspects with, with consciousness and he closed the door? Jung, um, try, try it like this. The Jung found within psychotic parts, and especially within a full-blown psychosis, mythological themes, okay? And he, he believed then that a knowledge of mythology and a connection 
in an imaginative, creative way to those themes could take what was basically a psychotic process and turn it into a creative process. The separate issue I was talking about was that as he entered those psychotic places within himself, he basically basically shut the door on anyone else going there and basically said, I've brought back this treasure. Here, guys, it's yours to work out. And in turn, then would employ the mythological level as a way of understanding the psychotic level. And what I've said is that we all have to recognize that that psychotic level is in all of us, that the mythological understanding of it can be a way of splitting it off and repressing it, and that all of us need to go into it, if it's our choice to do so, to rediscover what it's about and the nature of it, which is not taken care of by the mythological approach. Do you follow me? How does the heart... Can't say integrate. Well, how does the heart? Inter- I don't know if integrate's the right word. Anymore. Enter all yeah, this. We never integrate it. Yeah. How does the heart enter in a way? That yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm going to try to uh, use material to to help you uh, to help that come across more. But the basic idea is this is my thinking. You know, I can only tell you what I think about this. I'm sure that there's lots of ways to open the heart. Uh, people do chakra work meditation work, um, all different ways of opening the heart. I find that the way for me that it opens in relationship with another person. See, a lot of these other approaches open it, but not in relationship. The way the heart chakra opens in relationship with another person, and I mean the you know, to use uh, some of you know, to use Kundalini terminology, the shtula aspect, the aspect of the heart, you know, in which there is a really felt emotional connection, along with the second uh, level of opening, in which there is a connection through a spiritual background. The way that these levels open, I find, is through suffering, and only through suffering, and especially through the suffering of a person who recognizes the actions that they have committed that have defiled the soul. And that is a core aspect of the myth of Dionysus. The um, participants in that mythology learned of those parts of themselves, whether through actual lived behavior or in an Orphic rendition through um, past life fantasies, of those aspects of themselves in which and their in which their behavior was such, out of those aspects, their behavior was such as to actually commit tremendous pollution and defilement. The the uh, the absolute limit of it in the Bakai is the um, uh, is is killing like a mother killing her child. The the absolute defilement that image of it, but it's in recognizing those aspects of our being. <clears throat> in which we are truly mad without having known it, and in which we have, in fact, injured other people. Analysts do it all the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean a physical acting out any more than 
You know, a father doesn't need to commit actual incest with a daughter or son, or mother doesn't need to do this with a daughter or son in an actual physical way for there not to be a real incest violation. But the awareness of those parts of our being that have created actual damage with another person, knowing furthermore that those parts are never fully integrated, but they come to us. Like Dionysus, they come to us when he wishes to come that they come to us, and when he comes, he is sacrificed to. The coming of Dionysus in Greece was called an epidemic. It's where the word epidemic comes from. It was the coming of the god. The gods were epidemized, sacrificed to. It's It's an awareness of a basic limitation from this part. And I'll give lots of examples of how People get hurt. Subtle ways that are easily covered up. It's in the basic awareness of what we do to other people. Martin Buber says that every time an I-thou connection is missed, every time it is missed, evil is created. It's in the awareness of what we do out of these parts of ourselves that we are not aware of, and we think we know what we're doing, it's really Alice Miller for your own good, you know. It's when we have operated out of these parts and we come to realize that we carry a dark shadow. You can't get rid of it. It's on your back for life. And you've been limited. And you've suddenly grown up and you're your age. The puer never carries it. And when you carry that dark shadow, your heart will open. Does consciousness or the ego, it doesn't play a part in this, in this coming to awareness? Absolutely. It's not fundamental, but it's... it's abs- no, it's, it, is it, is it is fundamental. It is fundamental. You cannot do without that. It's absolutely fundamental. There has to be an ego awareness. There has to be an ego consciousness. But it's not a heroic ego any longer. It's an ego that's aware of the fact that it is highly limited. And it is not an ego any longer that is out to conquer new territory, but an ego that rather is out to embrace limitation as well. Then the heart can open, and then you can see through the heart. And it's only through the heart that you see those parts of a person's being that have been split off and have never been conscious. Or when they've come up to the world, they've met people who have known something. They've met knowledge in the other. And then they've met petrification. They become petrified and feel petrified, absolutely blocked, because they've met an other, usually going back to early object relations, they've met an other who knows doesn't see with the heart. When you can see with your heart and you're close to another person, you will see somebody who is terribly battered. If you can look with your heart with anybody who has had a difficult upbringing, say a father and a daughter, a father who never physically violated that daughter, but a father whose energy was violating that father could have been a nice guy. You know, the nice guys are the worst. Could have really been a nice guy, laid back, behind his paper all the time. 
and underneath the surface, terrible energies. Terrible energies. If you can look at that person with your heart, I say to you, you will often see a person who has a kind of body that's bruised. Not fragile, necessarily. Beaten up. If you look at the body of a deeply schizoid person, you will often find a body where almost the physical body itself is battered and gross and dull and heavy. But if you can see inwardly deeply, you can often find a great deal of light. If you look at anybody, not necessarily a deeply schizoid person, but you look at anybody who has suffered, and you look through the eyes of your heart, that's to say a kind of imagination that gives up the eyes from the ego's point of view, but opens the heart and waits for imagination and vision to arise. A sight through the heart embraces the spontaneity of vision. It doesn't impose any order of consciousness. It waits for something to come up. It might and it might not. But it waits, creatively waits. That's another aspect of the Dionysian. His main organ is the heart, and his main functioning is the spontaneity, the spurting, the leaping quality, is the spontaneous quality that comes up through the Dionysian. In those ways, one can see, and what you see is not a pretty picture. Nobody here has a pretty picture. But it is, an, it is a possibility to open to soul, to open to a kind of caring relationship for soul that doesn't come in another way. Okay? Do I answer you a little better? Yeah. Empathy and intuitiveness, how does that fit in? Well, to my mind, not very well. Um, because, you know, there's so many uh, definitions of this. First of all, one is dealing with uh, an, op- an imagination of the heart is an embodied act. Number one, you can have empathy and you can have intuition and be nowhere near your body. But if you have a heart connection, then the perceptions you have can be called intuitive or empathic. To be, to be empathic, for example, in, um, in uh, Kohut's sense, that of vicarious introspection, does not have to have any body in it. You can get into someone else's shoes through an imaginary act of getting back to your own being at times like that, that the person is into, and have an empathy with the person and have no opening of your heart at all. You can have all kinds of empathy and have no heart. Jung's idea of feeling into, that he talks about, remember, in uh, psychological types, Feeling into is a form of empathy in which uh, he calls it also the aesthetic uh, response where um, the, uh, a part of a person, actually the self in Jungian terminology, is put into the object and gathers information, so to speak, and then, is, and then that comes back to the subject. Um, it's a kind of a creative projective identification where part is put into someone, so to speak. That's to say that's how it feels. 
part is put into someone, it fishes around in there and gets something in distinction to going in there to be split off and taken care of. That's the pathological projective identification. Goes in there, fishes around, picks up some information, you know, like in looking at a painting, moving into a painting, and then comes back. And the aesthetic response, feeling into, all goes on without heart. Can totally go on through a consciousness in which there is a kind of ego observation and a kind of self as a background other that can move and do this without any sense of heart. Okay, So they're rather different categories. The heart is larger of the, than these categories. Okay. Um, Five-minute stretch? Okay. Seems like the idea that you're communicating is not to change the client, but to move them towards self-acceptance. Absolutely, absolutely. So, with him, with with the with the notion always that there's more to him than he knows. Right. So um, when you say that the therapist changes, yes. Can you go into that? I'll use later clinical material to tell you about that more more explicitly. But I'm talking about a case in which I discover, for example, that I've been blocking somebody's development. And that, in fact, I have to open in a very different way because of that and realize that that means a fundamental change in how I am with that person and in my life. So does that occur when you kind of uh, step into their phrase? Absolutely, and your own. It's like, it's like the god Dionysus had to be initiated into his own mysteries. The analyst has to be initiated into his own mysteries. You're here as, as, as a therapist, um, part of a mystery, and you don't know that you've got to be initiated yourself into it. I mean, so it sounds like it's very self-defeating on one level, then, or counterproductive to ever expect the client to change. It's totally counterproductive to expect the co- client to change. The only way change occurs is by not wanting change. I mean, change can happen, but you cannot make it happen. You cannot want it to happen. If you want it to happen, you're lost. That's entering in an analytic process with a certain desire. That's deadly. Desire must be sacrificed. An alchemical myth. Isis to her son, Horus. My son, Horus, I'm going to tell you the secrets of alchemy. I learned about him while you were off fighting your battles with your uncle Seth. It's kind of an important side issue. What did I, how did I learn these great secrets? I learned them from an angel. An angel approached, approached me, and he wanted to have his way with me. He desired me. I asked him to tell me the secret wisdom. He wanted his way with me. I continually held him off. He said, another greater than I must come. Another angel came. An angel had atop his head a vessel filled with water, a clear substance. And that angel wanted to have his way with me too. And I said no. And then he told me the secrets, the secret of alchemy. And here it is, my son. 
You make a dog from a dog, a cat from a cat, a lion from a lion, a man from a man. And anything else is a monstrosity. If you are sitting with a client and you have, a, and you have any idea at all of how this thing should go or could go, you've got some link to the unconscious or your storehouse of knowledge. The linking function is symbolized by an angel that will desire to incarnate. When you have some idea about how a patient should go, you are desiring to incarnate an idea in that patient. If you sacrifice that, if you hold off that desire, Beyond says you start every session without memory, without desire, without knowledge. If you dare to sacrifice that desire, hold it off. Then, whatever the patient is bringing is what you work with. You don't move it to something else. The patient brings emptiness, deadness, confusion. That is your dog that you work with. You make a dog out of that. You don't make a cat from a dog. You don't move it to something else. You never move it to something else. You move it by moving in it, with it. You work it. You work it through the way it affects you and the way you have a reverie about it and the way you imagine it. But you never work for change in that way. You grind up what's there or you tincture it. Those are the two basic uh, themes of, out of which uh, metallurgy and the dyeing industry out of which um, alchemy developed. You transform it in that way, if it will transform, but you don't come in with some Apollonian idea or imagination or way it should go. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, I agree. And yet, to say that one has no desire is a difficulty for me. You can't. I'm not. I'm not talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about. No desire in that way. I'm talking about no desire in a way in which the desire has to do with uh, incarnating your thoughts into matter. I'm talking about the desire. The desire is a second chakra level. The desire is at level of water. Without that, nothing happens. You have to have that level. You have to have that level, but it's how you work it. It's not, it's not, it's, it's rather, you don't identify with it is the point. You must have that level. There's lots of people who have skipped that level. Every narcissistic character has skipped that level and gone right into a third. So this is, I don't want to get into a chakra kind of discussion, but, but jumped it, okay? Yeah. So in a sense, you're floating out a chance for them to objectify what would be impossible for, from a subjective point of view, an entrance into what's their inner life, what might be yeah, in process. Or right, right. You're giving them a chance to have a kind of objective sense of themselves without misusing that for too much of a splitting device for too much of a way 
of splitting off mad, invasive, paranoid, attacking material. Can you do, when you do it, can you do something as simple, let's say, as a, as a movie, or does it have to be something archetypical or... Well, you, I think I think there's a kind of a problem when you use a movie. You're telling the guy what you do or the woman what you do. You're it's kind of seductive, you know. You're getting the person too much into your personal life. I'm a little a little reticent about that. You do, doing that, you know. See, the thing about myths is they endure. I mean, the reason a myth exists is a story. Well, all stories don't don't endure forever. I mean, somebody can have an incredible, huge, big dream. Uh, it doesn't become a myth for a culture. You know, it doesn't it doesn't endure. Myths endure. They're stories that endure. Myths don't necessarily come out of the collective unconscious any more than they come out of history. You can't say where a myth comes from. That old that old stuff is nonsense. You know, there's no serious student of myths that's going to talk about them as coming out of the collective unconscious. You know, any more than you're going to find a serious student of myth that's going to say they come out of historical replay. Robert Graves did that, but if you look at the work of Burkert, for example, real serious students now, Levi Strauss, it's complicated stuff. I mean, it's a very, uh, a very severe interaction between cultural, historical, you know, psychological factors. But the point is, a story comes out that endures. And that's its mystery. Jung's myth has endured. Freud's myth has endured over three, four, five generations of analysts. It still has a cohesive power. Something was tapped into. Something met with history at the time. Something got created. Something needs to change. Yet elements of the basic myth exist and stay. Um, in, I, I don't think necessarily so. I think that the uh, the advantage of, of myth is um, is often it has more of an emotional quality. The uh, fairy tales are usually real bone dry and abstract, um, but I don't think that's always the case. I think you want to. I think I want to use something that has an emotional tone. For example, a man. Um, who has been finally, after many, uh, after a long time of work, integrated his psychotic parts pretty well, knows that they are there within him, um, had a dream, and as part of the dream, uh, this is a man whose wife is pregnant, and as part of the dream, he goes and his wife is giving birth, and he sees the crown of the baby's head coming out, and he sees that the baby looks like his father. And he hesitates. He doesn't like that. Okay. Um, I thought of a myth. Gilgamesh epic. In the Gilgamesh epic, the hero Gilgamesh is a megalomaniac. He has been the great hero god, and he has now reached a point where he's devastating everything. The gods create the hairy man, Enkidu, to come and wrestle with Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh eventually defeats Enkidu. Then they're bored. 
they decide to go on this journey. They go on this journey together. Gilgamesh is able to say no to Ishtar. Gilgamesh and Enkidu together defeat the great forest demon, Humababa. As a result of that defeat, one of them has to die. Enkidu dies. Gilgamesh is faced with the fact that death exists now, and he's terrified. And so he goes on a long journey for the herb of immortality. He travels through much, much difficulty. He gets past all kinds of obstacles, and he finally gets to the great one, Utapa Shatim, the, the forerunner of the biblical Noah figure, the one who survived the flood, the great deluge, who lives at the end of the world. And he goes to him, and he, fi- he wants to know, tell me about becoming immortal. Tell me how to become eternal. I'm filled with anxiety. I don't want to die. You've got the secret. How do I do it? And this figure says to him, you can't. Everyone has to die. Go back to your kingdom. So Gilgamesh starts to go back, but the wife of Utapa Shatim takes pity on Gilgamesh and says, no, give him something. So he gives him an herb, and the herb will give Gilgamesh the capacity to relive his life but now knowing what he already knows. Gilgamesh hesitates. He's not sure about taking this herb. He wants to try it out first on someone who lives in the the Uruk, the kingdom he's about to return to. And in that hesitation, a serpent comes and steals it away. And Gilgamesh goes back to where he came from. This man hesitates. That's dangerous. You don't hesitate when the numinous is presented to you. Gilgamesh was given the capacity to live his life anew with what he knows, with what he knows. This young man is being given the capacity to live his life anew with what he knows. He has a son coming. The son is the death of the father. He has a son who's going to be born. He has his father within him. He has the capacity or the task to be able to relate to that boy as that boy is, not through his projections on how the boy is supposed to be. The classic problem for the father with the son. How is a father going to be with a son in a way that lets that son's individuality come to life without laying his own trip on the son? This is something this young man never had, and he also knows that what he suffers from is a terrible belief that he is going to do that with his son. He can't find it in himself to not do it. He's going to want that kid to be a certain way. He says that, I feel like saying, over my dead body. But that young man has the capacity, because it's presented to him, to know that that child that's going to be born It's going to be himself and his father. It's going to be someone in which he's going to see himself, his father, and have a chance for a new life with all that knowledge. That's a chance for rebirth. 
in a rebirth experience, one has the herb of this herb, like given to Gilgamesh, and one then has to reincarnate in life, this time knowing what one knows. That's what happens in a real rebirth experience. But that's where Gilgamesh hesitates. So again, a kind of myth comes up here, which I think is very meaningful to him. I think it helps somebody know that what they're involved in is bigger, beyond their narcissism, and people have been involved in it for centuries, you know, and it's, and it's at your door, and if you screw up, it's serious. Yeah? Could you elaborate how mythology could be used in the negative sense? Yes, because if I were to keep going back to this theme of, of initiation, and not go to the um, and not go back to his early development to the way he's you know his terrors and and his internal world is structured by how he was with his father mother etc if i also don't go back to that then the mythological thing is going to get spacey and it's going to become a catch all that answers everything it's only if you go between particularity the particularity of the person and then be able to shift to the more of the unity and go back and forth that it's not destructive. Because the, the danger is you begin to know something and everything you hear you begin to think about through that myth or through that pattern rather than letting each session be totally new. Absolutely, without, without really getting to the particularity of where he is in relationship to that whole. And that's something that has to be rediscovered all the time. See, I wouldn't pull that myth out again with him unless I rediscovered it in the moment of another session. Okay? So, um, I'll bring you uh, now something that talks about um, about discovering what I'd like to call uh, a mythical attitude. An attitude towards material. A capacity to have an attitude towards one's own material in which one has a story. It's not easy to have your own story. It's not easy to have a story that feels like a story, not pieces and parts of life. Not the fact that I did this and this and my mother and father did this and didn't do that. I suffered this violation, that violation, you know, I did this, I had this kind of illumination. It's very diff different, another matter of animal to feel that you have a story. When you dream of a child, yes, you're dreaming of yourself as a child. And you're dreaming of your history as a child, very commonly. But you're also dreaming of the mystery of the child, the mystery of the incredible individuation within that child that you once were, that has yet to become developed and revealed to you in your life. So the child you dream of is not a personal child. It's not an archetypal child. It's not a divine child. You know, this kind of splitting's disastrous. The child you dream of is both. The child you dream of is intensely personal and intensely mythical. 
the story this woman has is intensely personal and intensely mythical, and neither one nor the other alone suffices. But if I relate to her through a totally personal way, as these elements come up in the transference, as she replicates all these delusional structures that she has to get through in order to realize the truth of her inner world, if I don't deal with that alone for a long enough time, I'm never going to help her. But if I deal with it only on that level, things are going to get suffocated. And the mystery within her, the numinous within those elements, isn't going to come out. You see? Instead, all that's going to happen is one's going to see the limitations that she suffers. You know? And like used to be the case in my experience with most Freudian analysts in the past, they were all depressed. You know? Like Freud. One's going to see the limitation of it all, the truth, albeit, too. You know? The truth. It's like it's been said, you know, that if you wanted the truth, you go to Freud. If you want lies, you go to Jung. Um, <clears throat> that, or, that awful kind of garbage. Yes, the truth would be known, but not a truth on deeper, deeper levels. When the container wants to open to include a mythical level, I say if you're sensitive, it opens on its own. And you know when a larger dimension wants to enter. And if you are sensitive to that, you will also find when that larger dimension wants to recede and the dimension of parts and history wants to come back. And that you can play back and forth between these levels. Through levels in which there's the larger container of having a story. That story can get constructed in all kinds of ways. Powerful sources of it are feelings, fantasies of past lives. Powerful source of a story. The story can get created through powerful dreams. The story can get created through experiences. But the sense of having a story is a totally different way of feeling and apprehending your inner life from feeling yourself as dismembered and in pieces. And both are true. And being able to live in the realm of myth and in the realm of dismemberment and pieces is to be able to live in myth and to live in history and to have neither a favoring attitude of one or the other. But somewhere out of that combination, a path can exist. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org.